Well, good morning. So, I must confess, I always look forward to this time of year and the, the songs that we sing. Many of these, in some ways, we could just as well be singing all year long as they remind us of our Savior, His birth. And as so many of the words this morning reminded us of His kingship, and that is quite an appropriate theme um, in light of our overall study of the Gospel of Matthew with its focus upon Christ, the the King, the Messiah, the Promised One who reigns. It's particularly appropriate for our text this morning as we open up our Bibles again to the Gospel of Matthew as we see again the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God brought to the forefront in our text this morning. You can go and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 where we'll continue our study in a moment. How important is proper interpretation and understanding of scripture. How important is it to get it right? Well, as we're gonna see this morning, according to Jesus, understanding the importance of John the Baptist, understanding the prophecy that foretold of his coming and leading up to, and including John, getting it right and understanding it rightly is a matter of whether or not you enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, as we'll see this morning, to misunderstand or reject John the Baptist in his ministry is tantamount to misunderstanding and rejecting Christ himself. This morning, we join the crowds as we listen to Jesus' words as he emphasizes the importance of rightly understanding the role and the person, the message, and the ministry of John the Baptist. And while we're going to have a little bit different perspective than those crowds did, as We are viewing this from the other side of the cross. Understanding John, understanding this Baptist, is still important to us this morning. It's critically important. To understand John the Baptist and his ministry is to understand the messianic significance of Jesus and the promises yet to be fulfilled through his second coming. Understanding John's hope and his message likewise reinforces the hope that John and others had in the coming Messiah who would establish his kingdom upon the earth and rule in righteousness over the whole world. Saints have longed and hoped for Christ's return. They longed for it leading up to Christ and we continue to long for his second advent since. And so we can have some of the same hope, some of the same encouragement that John had as he looked for Christ as he looked for this Messiah. And so as we enter this Christmas season, I can really think of nothing better, no better place to start than to orient our minds toward the anticipated advent of the Messiah, especially as we long towards his second advent. So read along with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 11, beginning down in verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to the text this morning, would you do what we've already prayed this morning, which is to enlighten our eyes, to open our ears, to have a spiritual sensitivity to what you teach us through your word this morning as we read this record of your words to the crowds concerning John. May we understand and comprehend the significance of your messenger who went before you and what it means and what it proclaims about you yourself. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In the verses preceding this uh, pericope or this section, we looked at last week as Jesus was approached by disciples of John. They were sent by John to really set the Baptist's mind at ease, to reinforce his faith. John was, as we know, in prison. He wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't personally hearing what Jesus was doing. He wasn't personally seeing what Jesus was accomplishing. And he began to get discouraged because he was expecting this kingdom, this righteous rule to be established, and it wasn't happening as quickly as he was expecting. In fact, he was still languishing in prison. Perhaps the reports had reached him, as we talked about last week, where Jesus was telling his apostles and disciples, they are going to suffer ill treatment. This didn't sound anything like that final kingdom, where all weeping and pain and sorrow and death was done away with, where there was a righteous rule. And so he needed to know, he needed to be reinforced in his faith that Jesus was the Messiah. Specifically, his faith in the Old Testament promises concerning the coming of the Messiah. Because the entirety of John's ministry was proclaiming the imminent coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. However, as we discussed last week, John was looking for the full culmination and ushering in of the kingdom of God, with including its judgment and its righteous rule over the whole earth. What appeared to him as a delay caused questions to rise that he wished to be rid of that he wanted to settle very quickly. So he sent his disciples who asked Jesus if he was indeed the expected one. Jesus, as we looked at last week, affirmed that he was indeed the expected one. And the way he did this was by pointing John back to the Old Testament, back to scripture, to those prophecies concerning himself from Isaiah, unequivocally demonstrating that he was the Messiah. In addition, as we noted last week, The passages Jesus referred to all contain references to the coming judgment. And so Jesus was not only assuring John that he was indeed the promised Messiah, but that John was not entirely wrong to expect those things. In fact, he was not wrong at all to expect those things. Merely that John did not recognize, like so many of the prophets before, and so many of the people before, that the coming of the Messiah would be twofold. First is the suffering servant who would make propitiation or payment for the sins of all who would believe. And then secondly is the conquering king. 
And so now as John's disciples prepare to return to John with this message, Jesus turns from addressing those disciples of John to addressing the crowd at large. And he addresses them specifically about John. Because their understanding of John had direct bearing on their understanding of him and his ministry. To get the attention of the crowd and to focus it upon the person and ministry of John, Jesus starts by asking a series of rhetorical questions. Many of these in the crowd had, at one time or another, perhaps relatively recently, had gone into the wilderness. John was attracting persons from all over Israel to his preaching ministry. And so many of those in the crowd had gone and seen John the Baptist at one time or another. Some of them, in fact, Jesus' own disciples, had at one time been a disciple of John. So he begins to ask these rhetorical questions concerning what it was that they went to see when John was preaching in the wilderness. First, he asks, did you go to see a reed blowing in the wind? The banks of the Jordan where John ministered had reeds that it would grow as high as five meters, over 15 feet, that would, as you can imagine, blow back and forth with the wind. As Keener notes, perhaps this was the image that Jesus was drawing upon, since people would have been used to seeing those reeds while listening to John preach. But John and his preaching was nothing like those reeds. Keener goes on to note that the reeds were used as metaphors for people who proved too weak for the test that awaited them. Persons who were weak in character and fortitude were compared to weak, tall papyrus reeds, easily moved by something as little as a soft wind. John Bunyan describes in Pilgrim's Progress Mr. Pliable who would bend to the whim of the times, and as Bunyan noted, Mr. Pliable does not go to prison to be martyred for the truth. John, however, was no weak reed. He was no weak itinerant preacher, shaken in his convictions by the authorities or religious leaders of his day, but instead proclaimed the truth regardless of the consequences. Those consequences, as we know, landed him in prison when he ran afoul of Herod. People had come from all over because they longed to see and hear this type of message that John was preaching. A message with firm conviction, grounded in the word of God. Not a message that changes with the times, that's influenced by the popular teaching or societal norms. Nor that bent to the whims of other religious leaders or pressure from governing authorities when it came to sin and righteousness and the truth of the word of God. You know, to a certain extent, the same is true today. Most of us are drawn to persons of conviction. Not everyone, but most of us. We, we like when a person has conviction. We're drawn to that. We're naturally inclined to personalities that seem to know what they believe and are not afraid to say it. What we have to be wary of is that it's very easy to become enamored with such a person and mistake boldness for truthfulness. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being attracted to boldness, to firmness, to conviction. We just need and need to be careful that when it comes to the gospel, we don't let the charisma of a person cause us to embrace the message without thinking, without evaluating, without holding it up to the light of scripture. Well, when it came to John, this careful evaluation showed that he passed the test, both in message and in character. John was no weak reed. 
Jesus goes on to ask rhetorically and somewhat sarcastically, well then, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? In other words, did they go out into the wilderness to find a rich, influential ruler? The answer is obviously no. You go to the palaces for that. You don't go to the wilderness. That's not why they went out. They weren't seeking to be close to John because of some perceived wealth or influence John had among the rich and powerful, that perhaps that proximity to wealth will result in wealth for me. John, for his part, was an austere prophet dressed in camel hair with a leather belt. His diet was simple, a little too simple for me, consisting of locusts and wild honey. And what a stark contrast John would have made with many who call themselves preachers, prophets, or apostles today. Today, many are dressed in this soft clothing that is expensive clothing, seeking to be attractive on the outside, to attract persons to themselves, while on the inside they are springs without water. In fact, there's an Instagram account called Preachers in Sneakers. And it highlights the values, the wrong values, of so many celebrity church leaders today with their wealthy shoes, their clothing, and their watches, all seeking to be attractive to the world. Virtually all of the persons highlighted are promoting a false gospel. Outward wealth is no indicator of righteousness or faithfulness or blessedness. John the Baptist knew this. He made no pretense of wealth. He made no effort to be attractive by the world's standards. That was not what brought persons from all over the country into the wilderness. So what did they go to see? Jesus asked the third and final question. Was it a prophet that you went out to see? This time the answer is an emphatic yes. Yes, they went out to see a prophet, but they got more than they bargained for. What they saw was more than a typical prophet. They saw the greatest of prophets. To understand the true significance of John the Baptist, Jesus then quotes from the Old Testament. He makes reference and allusion to Malachi chapter 3 and Exodus 23, while saying that John is the one about whom these passages spoke. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles back to Exodus. In Exodus 23, the people of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, or as it's sometimes called, Mount Horab. Here God is speaking to Moses while Israel is camped about. This is where Israel receives the law and its initial commissioning and constituting as a nation. And in verse 23, we see down in verse 20, This verse that there's this train of illusion, and we'll pick it back up. We already read Isaiah 40 this morning, which alludes to it, and then in Malachi 3. But in verse 23, we read God's promise to Moses for the people of Israel. And he says, for my angel. Now, I need to make a comment here. The word angel is the exact same word as messenger. Context is how you determine whether it's messenger or angel and which is translated, but it's the exact same word. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. God promised to send an angel before them. As he took them into the promised land, he would send his messenger before them. Now turn to the very end of the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 3. 
You go back to where you were in Matthew and stop just a little bit short and you'll be there. Malachi, the last of the prophets, ministered approximately 400 years before Christ, and after him there was no other until John the Baptist. This is the final word to Israel prior to John the Baptist. And Malachi concludes his message by telling Israel to anticipate and look for a messenger who will come and usher in the kingdom of God. Look in verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Notice he goes on to say, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. And he goes on to describe the greatness and the terrifying aspect of the day of the Lord. But then you look down in chapter 4, which, by the way, there is no such break in the Hebrew Bible. Chapter 4 is part of chapter 3. It just continues with verses 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. But he says there in verse 4 of chapter 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. This takes us back immediately to the foot of Sinai again. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. In these passages, we see the promise of a messenger who will clear the way before the Lord, who will lead the people to the place God has prepared. Exodus 23:20 20 described God sending his messenger or angel before Israel to guide them into the promised land or to that earthly kingdom that they longed for. This thing was picked up by Isaiah. It was then picked up by Malachi to describe another messenger, a new messenger who will come and like the messenger before, guide the people of God. And like the messenger before, he would guide them toward a kingdom. Only this time it will guide true Israel into the kingdom of heaven. The writer of Hebrews describes the patriarchs of old who longed for a country of their own, for the promised land. But what, they, what this passage really illustrates, what the Old Testament really highlights is what they really longed for was a heavenly one. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. The earthly was always intended to be a foretaste of the heavenly kingdom that awaited true believers in God. The promised land was always to be an earthly kingdom that merely whet the appetite for the heavenly kingdom. In Malachi, this messenger prepared the way for the great and terrible day of Yahweh. We spoke last week about the faltering faith of John, wondering where the judgment of God was in Jesus' coming. Well, Jesus iterates that John's expectation, again, by referring to this passage, by alluding to Malachi, and by the way, he bookended Malachi 1 and then the end of Malachi, Malachi 3, 1, and then the end of chapter 3 or chapter 4. He bookended, and within that was 
the day of the Lord and the judgment that will take place. However, the focus here is not on the judgment that is incumbent on the day of the Lord, but on the identification of John the Baptist as the one who promised to come, who was promised to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, so he's identified John the Baptist as this messenger, this later Old Testament messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord, who would help lead the people of Israel, all true believers, true Israel, into the kingdom of God to help pave the way for this. But why? Why does Jesus take the time to make this connection? What is so significant and so important that he needs to make this connection to the crowds and to us today? Let's, in order to identify not John, but himself. It's to highlight who he is. You notice at the beginning of Malachi chapter 3, this messenger prepares the way of the Lord whom you expect. Jesus is saying, I am God. And I am the Messiah. I am the expected one. And the expected one is God. Here we have a clear statement of the divinity of Christ, of his godness. By identifying John the Baptist as the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, he proclaims the Messiah. And it's in this message and role that John makes, or it's this message and role that makes John and his ministry so unique and so special as being the forerunner, the one who leads the way, who prepares the way, who makes ready the way for the Messiah. In fact, Jesus summarizes this in the next verse, in verse 11, where he notes the greatness of John, saying, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And there have been some great persons in Israel's history. You think about Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel, others. So what was it that made John so unique and so great compared to those others? I mean, John didn't work the miracles that Elijah or Elisha worked. He didn't have the dreams and the visions that Daniel had. What was it that made John the Baptist so great? Clearly wasn't his fashion style. John's greatness had less to do with who he was than who he was introducing. As one commentator notes, John's greatness was that he had the honor of introducing Jesus himself. That was John's greatness. It was the role he got to play. It was his proximity to the Savior. The greatness of John thus implies something about the greatness of Jesus. John's relationship to the Messiah is what makes him great. He was the most immediate and near herald of the Messiah. He had a unique and unparalleled privilege in his nearness, in terms of his relationship and in his ministry to the Messiah. That is what made John great. Jesus immediately goes on to say something quite unexpected. I mean, immediately after saying that there has never, there's not been one born among women who is greater than John the Baptist, what does he immediately say next? Well, there's actually a whole bunch who are greater. After pointing out that, that prophets hundreds of years earlier had prophesied about John's ministry, and that among men, women, he was the greatest to have ever been born, the very next thing he says is the last thing you would expect 
someone to say. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is what? Greater than John the Baptist. Greater than he. As Davies and Allison note, John, the greatest person to ever live, becomes the foil against the surpassing greatness of the kingdom of God. Which makes even the least of those who partake in the kingdom greater than John the Baptist. That is, there is no greater identity than belonging to the kingdom of God. And so again, we can understand Jesus is saying this. He's saying that this is true, that the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John the Baptist. But what is it that makes that true? What is it that, that makes this contrast true? Why does belonging to the kingdom of God make even the least of these greater than John the Baptist? Again, we have to return to what was it that made John great? He was the greatest because of his proximity to Christ, proclaiming the way for him with clarity hitherto unseen. And that is precisely what makes the least in the kingdom of the God greater still. Believers are even more closely associated with the Messiah than John the Baptist was as his herald or messenger. We stand in even nearer and closer relation to God than John the Baptist did. And you may have already recognized this from what we've been studying over the past few weeks. This, this is the significance of what it means to take up one's cross, we looked at a few weeks ago, where you sacrifice your identity Instead, wrapping yourself in the identity of Christ. This new identity makes even the most timid of disciples greater than John. Not because of anything in oneself, but because of the forgiveness, the power, and the new life of the reign of God. Because we no longer trace our lineage to one born among women. But we trace our lineage to the Son of God himself, being fellow heirs and partakers with Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, we are adopted sons, fellow heirs with Christ, and call God our Father. It's part of the privileges of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And this proximity to Christ, this identity with Christ, makes us even greater than John the Baptist. Which again speaks to the greatness of Christ. The closer you get to him, the greater you become. Not because of anything in you, not in anything in me, but because of my nearness to the Savior. John knew this. John would not have been at all upset. In fact, he very well may have heard from his own disciples these words. It would not have upset him in the least. He had already said, and it was recorded by the Apostle John in John 3.30 regarding Jesus, John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. As a citizen of the kingdom, we have an even more, we are able to even more unambiguously preach and proclaim Christ and the message of salvation. Where John still spoke through the veil of the old covenant, new covenant believers proclaim even more clearly the gospel of salvation and the message of the kingdom of God. And we have an identity that even John did not have at that time. As we are called Christians, little Christs. I'm sure a murmur began to run through the crowd at this point. 
as they began to contemplate what Jesus was saying. Not only was John the Baptist the promised forerunner to the Messiah, but his greatness paled in comparison to those who become partakers of the kingdom of God. And yet as shocking as these things were, Jesus is not finished with hard statements. He moves from the least in the kingdom of God to those who are attacking with violence the kingdom of God. These references in verse 12 to violence against the kingdom of God raise the question as to what is being attacked. At this point, as John himself is recognized, and thus the faltering faith that needed to be firmed up and established in the previous verses we looked at last week, there is no physical kingdom. There is no palace, there is no city wall, there is no city gate. So who or what is being attacked? And that answer returns us to chapter 10. And Jesus' words concerning throughout most of chapter 10, most of his preparation for the apostles and the disciples and all who call themselves faithful followers of Christ, focused and centered around this persecution persecution that would come to Jesus and his apostles and all faithful disciples. The kingdom of God is represented by its citizens. And so it is the people of God and the truth of God that is assaulted. Similarly, there are persons who want all the blessings of the kingdom without the sacrifice, without the suffering. These are the religious leaders and their followers trying to force their way in through their own efforts and attempts, not by the narrow gate but by forcing their way in through their own religious practices and their man-made religions. That while having the appearance of godliness, they lack substance and character found in the Beatitudes. Now all of this violence and plotting by evil men, it's ultimately in service to God's purpose. As we read in Psalm 2, what does God do while men are scheming? He sits in the heavens and laughs. God will use the violence of men who crucify Christ to bring, out the bring about the forgiveness of sins. He'll use the violence of men against the kingdom of God to bring about the growth of the kingdom of God. As was said from the early church, the blood of the martyrs waters the seed of the church. As one commentator notes, it is best to understand this difficult passage as teaching the difficult truth that John in prison has been learning. The kingdom will not immediately judge God's enemies, but will itself be oppressed by them for a time until God vindicates himself and his people. But as Peter reminds us, this is not slowness on God's part. It is gracious and merciful patience, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Having reminded the crowds of this sobering reality concerning the kingdom, Jesus turns to John the Baptist in verses 13 and 14 again. You see, John sits astride the old age and the new age. He's the last of the prophets to proclaim the coming of Christ and the first to proclaim Christ has come. Here we're reminded of what the, old, of what the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets has been leading towards. It's historical trajectory, if you will. It has been pointing toward Christ. On the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus speaks to two of his disciples. And after he'd been with them, questioning them for a little while as they were walking along, they were saying, are you, are you serious? You really don't know what just took place in Jerusalem? So they began to relate to him about Jesus, to Jesus. 
about his death and all. And, and then Jesus begins to explain to them things concerning the kingdom, things concerning himself. And he says in verse 25 of Luke 24, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. And while we must be careful to avoid forcing Jesus explicitly into every Old Testament text, we should always be paying attention to how everything in the Old Testament points toward the need, the promise, the hope of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Every part of the Old Testament builds toward and leads toward Jesus Christ. John the Baptist needed his faith to be strengthened because things were not working out quite as fast as he expected, not quite the way he expected. He didn't understand why the kingdom of God was not yet established, why wickedness was still prevailing, why Christ was teaching about future suffering and difficulty for his disciples when he should be establishing the kingdom, at least in John's understanding. And Jesus recognized these are hard things to understand. He even iterates here that these are hard things to accept, and yet they do not undermine the promises of the Old Testament, the promises of the coming, of his coming as a suffering servant, nor does it undermine the promises of the coming day of the Lord that will bring about the culmination of the establishing of the kingdom and the judgment of God. And so he says in verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Referring back to what we read in Malachi 4. John is not the same physical Elijah revived from the dead as he, he himself made clear in John 1.21, he said, I'm not Elijah. However, he does come in the spirit and power of Elijah. How do I know this to be true? Because I read the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 1, and you're welcome to turn there. In Luke 1, if you look in verse 12, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was in the temple and an angel appeared to him, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. By the way, just a little side note, if anyone says they've had a heavenly vision and fear has not gripped them, they've seen something else. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It sounds just like the end of Malachi chapter 4. Then it says in verse 17, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. There's that quote from Malachi. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And the Lord he is referring to there is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord from Malachi 3.1. John is thus the eschatological Elijah who makes straight the way of the Messiah. So Jesus says, by accepting that John is the promised Elijah, the eschatological Elijah. One must likewise accept that Jesus is Lord coming behind his messenger. 
So what are we to do with this truth and revelation that Jesus makes explicit concerning John? The, John, uh, the greatness of the kingdom, the attacks against the kingdom, as well as attacks against the citizens of the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 15 on how we should respond. Where he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Perfectly clear, right? This isn't a reference to simply hearing something. It's not just listening to something. Nor is it a reference to physical ears. This is a metaphor. This is figurative language. This is speaking of ears capable of hearing and understanding spiritual things. Having ears is a reference to true and faithful disciples, believers, those who have received new ears, as it were, a new ability to comprehend, to comprehend spiritual things, to appraise spiritual things. To hear is to listen, to understand, to believe, and to obey. In fact, you find this term, hear or listen, in the New Testament, akuo, it's used to emphasize each of those connotations throughout Scripture. In fact, the most common word translated obey is from the root akuo, to hear. We do this with our children, right? You know, did you listen to me? We mean, did you obey? It's the exact same thing, and we find that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Colossians 3.22, just for, by way of example, Paul writes saying, slaves in all things obey using that same term, those who are your masters. In Romans 6.16, Paul writes saying, do you not know that, you, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, Paul writes saying, if anyone does not obey, that same word, our instruction in this letter takes special note of that person. Jesus further explains the meaning of this phrase just a few chapters later in Matthew 13. And we'll get there in a few weeks, but go ahead and turn there now to Matthew 13, verse 9. Here again we read, as Jesus finishes his statement, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, what you learn is that he has just begun speaking in parables. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, why are you changing the way you're talking to them? And we're going to have fun when we get to this passage because parables are not there for the reason most of us think they're there. Jesus answered to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Another way of saying that is you have ears, they don't. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, they hear, but they're not obeying, and they don't even understand to be able to obey. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. That return and heal is a prominent theme throughout the Old Testament. 
but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Regarding this expression, D.A. Carson notes, it is both a metaphorical description of and a challenge to spiritual sensitivity to the claims of the gospel. We need to be busy about cultivating spiritual sensitivity to these things, of doing hearing checks, making sure that we're paying attention to what God is saying, to noting what he is teaching us about himself. When we read our Bibles, we don't merely let it go one in ear and out the other as quick as possible, but take the time to meditate upon it, to think about it, to understand it, to understand it in such a way that it has impact on my life and how I think and how I behave. How do you do this? It begins by that study of Scripture, regularly and carefully. Yes, read Scripture just to fill your mind with it, but also slow down and take the time to study it. Learning to read and recognize promises concerning Christ, and that takes time, it takes practice. Scripture is not enigmatic, but at the same time, it is also not simple. As I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, it is, it is easy enough for a child to play in and deep enough to drown a grown man. It is so profound that we will never fully plumb the depths of Scripture. Peter writing to believers several decades after Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension sought to provide hope to the believers. And he does that by looking back at the encouragement from the prophets. It's interesting. He goes all the way back to the Old Testament to provide that encouragement as he builds toward Christ. And he leads to and wants to provide a hope of what they have been waiting for, for the return of Christ and the culmination of the kingdom of God. For that second half, that second advent, that coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the expected one, everything else that John was proclaiming, that John was looking for while in prison. Peter says, it's coming. It will come. As we close, I want to read this section and make a couple of comments. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And notice the logic of what Peter does here. As he works through the promise, the arrival of Christ, looks back at the prophets and what they prophesied and the hope we have in the prophets, reminds us of the second coming, and then ends and closes with what does that mean for us today? How should we then live? Beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is, at his return. And though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. In light of these things, in light of this reality, in light of your heavenly hope, In light of all of these promises, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How? As obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior doesn't really leave room for anything else. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Do you see the significance of what he did there at the end? Why, why do we want to be holy? He says, because I am holy. Well, why does that matter? Because we are to be enveloped in Christ's identity. We are to look like Christ. And so we are to strive to be holy as he is holy. This is how you create that spiritual sensitivity. Nothing will dull your spiritual ears faster than disobedience. I think most of you know, I certainly do in my life, this reality. That when I am not walking and doing the things I should do, when I'm not living the way I should be living, my sensitivity to spiritual things is dulled. And yet, when I'm walking obediently, walking by the Spirit, the awareness, the attunedness I have to the opportunities the Lord provides, to the ways in which I can minister to others, my ability to to minister and to look outside myself grows exponentially. So Jesus closes by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for this reminder that Matthew provided through your spirit of John the Baptist. Father, as we look at the greatness of John the Baptist, Father, it really humbles us that it is possible to be greater. Not because of anything we can do, anything we can achieve, or anything of ourselves, but simply our proximity to you. May we draw nearer and nearer to you each and every day. Father, as we enter into this Christmas season and we contemplate that first advent, may it encourage us and motivate us and create within us a longing for the second advent and the return and the kingdom which you will establish. We pray these things in your name. Amen.